Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. You got your Bibles, make your way over to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. So we've been in this series called Getting Started, and the whole series was designed kind of like we said for the month of April, if you're new to church, this is a great time. By the end of the month of April, you'll kind of have the handles for what it means to walk as a Christian in everyday life, right? And that's why, you know, we said we're going to finish in baptism, we're going to get some See, a lot of people take that first step of obedience to Christ in baptism, and um, we're going to talk to you today about, in this last week of the series, the calling, the calling of every Christian in the community that he or she lives in. This calling is the calling God gave Israel when it was wandering in the wilderness. It is the only command Jesus tied directly to the greatest commandment to love God with everything you have. Jesus said this calling is the calling that will be the greatest apologetic for the gospel. It's the calling that James said it separated true religion from fake religion. It made the apostle John say the same thing. It's the calling that made the Roman emperor Julian confess the impact that the early church was having among the poor in his empire as this church did baby runs to pick up abandoned children that were left on doorsteps. It's the calling that made Christians in the Middle Ages go into villages that were stricken by the plague at risk and often at sacrifice of their own lives so they could help others. It's the calling that led William Wilberforce to sacrifice all of his money and all of his reputation to bring an end to the slave trade. It's the calling that compelled John Mott to do everything he could to help disconnected young men on the Chicago streets. So he built little community centers that he called Young Men's Christian Associations or the YMCAs. It's the calling that led Mother Teresa to found missionaries of charity to care for people with HIV, AIDS, leprosy, and tuberculosis. It's the calling that led the civil rights movement as men like Dr. King and Dr. Perkins and others desired to see all people treated as equally as they were created. Today, this calling leads Christians against the horrible tragedies of abortion, of sex trafficking, of human rights atrocities around the world. It's the calling that drives us as a church It is the measuring stick by which we measure success as a church. This calling by God straight from Christ to every one of his disciples, the calling that has done more than any other to change the face of the planet for the glory of God, the calling that brings more joy to Christians when we obey it than any others is simply this. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. That's our big idea for today. The one thing, if you walk out nothing else today, the one thing I want you walking out with is God calls me to love my neighbor. In fact, it is so intertwined with God's own character and the life that he calls his people to that there are, get this, 2,100 verses in the Bible that deal directly with our relationship to the poor. There is no way to read the Bible 
where neighbor love is not a central calling to the lives of God's people. But y'all, here's the deal. The reality is evangelicals, by and large, have not been known for how well they care for the poor. In fact, there is it's often said or, or viewed a kind of an assumption that evangelicals will tout that, you know, well, if we, if we really understood the gospel, we'd be more concerned with winning souls. That's what we should give our time to, is winning souls, not feeding stomachs. That any form of social justice type ministry, that's just for the domain of those religious liberals who don't believe the gospel enough to preach strong truth. Y'all listen, here in our church, we believe the gospel is primary. We center all of our messages. We center all of our ministry on that. But I want to show you today how the church reveals an incomplete understanding of the gospel when it proclaims a sacrificial love that it does not also practice. That maybe there's a hole in our gospel we need to open our eyes to, and maybe some of us even repent of. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you one encounter where Jesus explains why this is such a big deal. Again, I, I got the whole Bible I feel like to choose from, but we're going to take this one, we're going to walk through it, and I'm going to show you what neighbor love looks like and why Mercy Church must actively engage with the hurting in our community. So we're in Luke chapter 10. We're starting in verse 25. All right, you ready to go? Good, because we're locking in, baby. Here we go. 25. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, now I want to acknowledge first, right out of the gate, this is perhaps the most important and most basic of all religious questions, right? It's the question a lot of y'all aren't really sure if you know the answer to. What do I do? What happens when I die? How do I know for sure that I'm going to wind up in heaven when I die? How do I know? Today, you're going to hear that answer loud and clear. And what you also need to know, though, is that this guy, this guy's not being entirely honest, all right, what he's trying to do is he's trying to, to test Jesus, trying to get him into a little bit of a, of a trap. But Jesus happens to be pretty sharp. On account of his divinity and whatnot, he is able to outsmart this guy. Watch the exchange. Verse 26, what, what is written in the law? Jesus asks him, how do you read it? So this guy answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus told him. Do this and you'll live. Isn't that great? <laughs> kind of chuckle a little bit at this. The, what, he's, what he's doing, the guy is quoting the greatest commandment from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, and Jesus is saying, yep, that is the, the greatest commandment, really the one that sums up all the others, he says elsewhere. But think about the impossibly high standards that this commandment sets, Okay. Love the Lord your God completely, all your heart, mind, strength, right? A hundred percent of your affections have to be on him. Every ounce of your strength should be pointed at loving him all of the time, all of you loving God at your highest possible capacity. Then you got to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, which means you always put other people's needs above your own. You must desire their good above your own, right? You must meet the needs of your neighbor with all the force, joy, speed, and power that you meet your own needs. Now, how many of you are passing the test so far? How many of you are even passing the test this morning? Nope, four kids getting ready for, for church. 
I didn't pass the test just this morning, let alone with my whole life. Now, on top of all of that impossibility, don't you, you know that you really can't command love. And that's the problem with this thing, right? Love is a response to something that the heart is moved by. For example, you don't have to command me to love my kids. I love them by instinct, right? Same thing with, with ping pong, baseball, and dark chocolate, all right? For me, you do not have to command me to say, hey, man, you really should love these. Nope, all you have to do is present them in front of me. I love them, all right, instinctively. But on the other hand, you can't force me by command to love something or someone that I don't love, right? Take pimento cheese. I know I'm in the South. I know I was raised in the South. That stuff is nasty, all right? That's just fried green tomatoes, pimento cheese, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you can force me to eat it, but you can't force me to love it, okay? Because love is a response to something that the heart is moved by. And that's this guy's problem, this expert who's talking to Jesus. Really, it's all of our problem. You can't force love. And even if you could, you still would never be able to perfectly obey this high standard of loving God and loving others perfectly, which is why this legal expert says what he says next. Watch this. But wanting to justify, is right, that's where you're gonna start to identify with this guy. Wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, he feels the problem, and he's a smart guy. So he's asking about the identity of a neighbor in hopes, in hopes if he can limit the scope of who his neighbor is, maybe he'll have a chance at obeying this command. But that still presents a problem, because his primary concern in asking this question is what? It's for his own soul, which in the end would mean he would be serving his neighbor ultimately just to serve himself. This is the problem that many who are kind of disenfranchised with religion, this is the problem they'll point out with it. They'll say, you guys claim, you Christians claim to be doing good deeds, but in reality, you're just loving as a means to get God's blessings. You're just loving me in order to love yourself and get heaven, eternal life. But then the gospel comes along and says, no, 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 no. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You can't do it. You're too messed up. We all are. So Jesus comes along and he lives the perfect life, perfect neighbor love, loving God completely, loving others completely. And then what the gospel says is he takes this label that he, in effect, has that says righteous, and he puts it over our label sinner, and he puts it onto us. And so now we're righteous, not because we have earned God's righteousness, but because Christ has given it to us. See, all this is going on in here, in this opening interaction. So what does Jesus do? Well, it's kind of a, a classic Jesus move, okay? Whenever somebody starts to get a little confused, Jesus puts on a southern accent, and he goes, all right, now, let's slow this thing down. Let me tell you a story, okay? And that's what he does. He said, I'm going to tell you a little story, straighten things out. Now, you got to watch, because as he tells this little story, he shifts the question from who is your neighbor to how do you love your neighbor? Catch that? He's not going to answer the question that's asked. He's going to flip it. And in flipping it, he shows us what neighbor love is and where the power for it comes from. Watch verse 30. Jesus took up the question and said, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. All right, so this is a parable, all right, a fictional story. Remember that. But he, he's doing what he can to make it relatable to his audience. It'd be like me saying, let me tell you a fictional story about a kid from Charlotte who went over to Carowinds, got on the pirate ship, went all the way up and threw up, going down, right? It's fictional. Sure, it never really happened, you know. It's just fictional, right? But it gives you kind of the setting so you can understand the story. Same thing going on here. Everything I've read the past few days said this is really a road down from Jerusalem down to Jericho, literally went down. It was 17 miles long, and over the course of those 17 miles, the elevation drops 3,000 feet, all right? And, and a lot of rocky outcroppings, plenty of spots for robbers. It was a dangerous road. Everybody knew it. So they know the road that he's talking about. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, I think Jesus starts with the priest because this audience, namely this legal expert, would he be able to sympathize with this guy a little bit? I mean, after all, this is a dangerous road. He's got, he's a priest. He, this is really well-respected guy in his community. He's got important places to go, important religious work to do. To stop and help this guy, that'd be a huge time cost, and it'd be really dangerous. Who knows when these robbers are going to be coming back? But Jesus says, he makes a point to say, he passed by on the other side. That's what you got to see. It's a priest, it's a guy who is a religious leader, and he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, in the same way a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. This guy does the same thing. Levites were kind of like, kind of like priests, but um, like the JV version, okay? So they weren't um, as, as respected as priests, but they were still respected religious leaders. Start to become clear what Jesus is doing, right? Remember who he's talking to. A lawyer well-versed in Jewish tradition and scripture. A lawyer trying to figure out how to wiggle away around the command to love your neighbor. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's revealing the heart of this man that has asked them this question. I know he's revealing the hearts of many of us in this room today, that we often pass by on the other side. We're going to talk about it more in a second, but for most of us, it isn't ignorance that keeps us from neighbor love, y'all. It's inconvenience. It's not that we don't know about it. It's that we're too busy, too important. We got too much going on in our lives, so we pretend like we don't see those hurting people, we don't know about those hurting people in our city, and we do everything we can, we build our lives so that we can pass by on the other side. But then verse 33. Oh, by, by the way, as I'm getting to verse 33, I wanna tell you, there's gonna come a moment in our service where some people are gonna be getting up and going out kind of all at the same time. That is not an organized protest. They're getting ready to go get baptized, okay? So they're getting their clothes on and stuff like that. So y'all see that happen? Don't worry, everything's okay. All right, anyways, verse 33. A Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Now, here's the, this is the twist. Jesus' listeners would have expected the next guy in line, there's kind of a theme going, really religious guy, you know, kind of religious guy, it would have expected the next guy in the lineup to be kind of like average Joe Jewish guy, right? And so then Jesus could say, you know, don't be like these elitists. Instead, just be like the good guy, right? Just be like average Joe. But instead, Jesus throws in a Samaritan. A Samaritan, listen, was a half 
Jew, half-Gentile offspring of the Assyrians who had conquered northern Israel and forced Jews to intermarry with them. So they were in the Jews' eyes like half-bloods. Or if you're a Harry Potter, Potter fan, they're like mudbloods. Okay, so whatever works for you. This was a big deal. These two people groups had a significant amount of racial violence back and forth with one another. They weren't pals, okay? They weren't good friends. The Jews did everything they could to stigmatize Samaritans as rejects and as outcasts, and Samaritans often responded by robbing the Jews on their way to Jerusalem. In fact, they were even known to desecrate the temple on the eve of Passover, listen to this, by launching these Samaritans would launch pigs over the wall into the court and have them splatter on the altar, desecrating the temple. Y'all, this is not, not good stuff. They had a long history of hating each other. And then, and then Jesus says, his character is a Samaritan. A Samaritan steps in. And the Samaritan, instead of bringing vengeance, he has compassion. He has compassion. And look at what he does. Verse 34. So he went over to him, the Samaritan, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. See all you guys in a few minutes. We're excited. In verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. See what's happened? This Samaritan, Jesus says in his little story, has given this guy his own bandages, his own oil and wine. I don't know if this is like first century Neosporin. I'm not sure why oil and wine. I don't know what they do, but he's given it to him. His own animal to ride on, and he spent two months worth of his own money on his room and board and then said, if there's any extras that incur, you're gonna let me pay for that too? So verse 36, which of these three, Jesus says, now he's, now he's driving the question, right? He's gonna flip it. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He shifts the question, throws it back at the guy. Not who is your neighbor, but who are you a neighbor to? Verse 37, well, the one who showed mercy to him, he said. And then Jesus told him, go and do the same. All right. There are a couple of very important reasons that we need this encounter today. In this encounter, Jesus shows us what neighbor love looks like, and he shows us our motivation for it. So I want to take a few minutes and show you what neighbor love looks like, and then I want, you to sh I want to show you our motivation for it here at Mercy Church. And we'll finish with a couple of action steps, the main one being to go and, and sign up for a chance to get engaged with some people that don't look like you, that don't share your story, and you can go and serve them. All right, but first, what neighbor love looks like, all right? There'll be kind of two parts to the rest of the sermon. What neighbor love looks like, what our motivation is. First, what it looks like. Remember the premise. The premise of this encounter was a lawyer trying to limit the command to love your neighbor so that he could earn eternal life. But what limits did Jesus allow? I'll, I'll allow audience participation. What limits did Jesus allow? None, right? We always allow audience participation, guys. Get in here with me, okay? Listen, none. If anything, in the nature of his response, he heightened the expectation of what it meant to practice neighbor love. Looking back at this parable, 
Here's what I want to show you. So you can see what neighbor love looks like. I want to show you who we're called to love. I want to show you when we're called to love and how much we're called to love. So here's who are we called to love. Here's the deal. It's very easy, very natural for us to offer neighbor love to those who look like us and are from the same subculture as us. Basically, it's easy to care about those people that you identify with. But Jesus's story involves a Samaritan crossing an incredibly big social and cultural boundary to help this hurting Jew, which is a big warning to anyone who would dare to try and limit the scope of what it means to be a neighbor. So who are we called to love? We're called to love anyone in need. That's who the church is called to love. Our local outreach team here at uh, Mercy, led by Jill Ferguson, has put together a profile of the hurting in Charlotte, those in need. And listen, for us, for most of us, you're likely gonna have to cross some social, some cultural barriers to love these people in need, to give them neighbor love. Here they are. I'm gonna list them off for you, the groups that we're focusing in on. You probably should write these down. You'll get the chance to interact with them through Serve Week. The first is homeless. The homeless. On a given single night last year, 1,476 people were experiencing homelessness in Mecklenburg County. And that's actually down 12% from the year before. When they ran a study on Charlotte Mech school systems a couple of years ago, they found that in a single school year, over 4,000 students experienced a homeless crisis at some point during the school year. Next group we're, we're seeking to serve that's in need are the orphans. There are currently 566 children in foster care in Mecklenburg County. There are 40 children right now seeking adoption who do not have an identified placement. But here's the deal. What's the gospel say? The gospel says God has adopted us. He came way out of his way to do so. All right, Philippians 2, Jesus up in heaven says he put aside that to come down and redeem us. Church, we could be a part of erasing this need. The next group in need is the unborn. The people in the womb whose lives are regularly taken before they're ever born. Last year, 10,000 abortions were performed in Charlotte. What if we could love these mothers in such a way that we offer them a different narrative for their unplanned or undesired child? Neighbor love for both the mother and the child. The refugees. Approximately 17,000 refugees have resettled in Charlotte in the past 20 years. That's enough to fill up the Spectrum Arena. And right now, about six to 700 are moving into Charlotte every year. Y'all, that, that's basically a mercy church amount of people every year moving in. But they're not gonna walk up to you and ask you to give them neighbor love. No, we're gonna have to cross cultural and social boundaries to help those in need. The next group are the victims of human trafficking. Listen, this, this just shouldn't be. There is a marketplace for people, mostly children, to be sold as slaves to satisfy the sexual desires of those that can afford them. That is deep, deep darkness. And in North Carolina, a study came out according to the National Human Trafficking Resource Center. Charlotte is the worst city in North Carolina for human trafficking. And it is in the, I guess you would call it top eight, should be bottom eight 
cities in America for human trafficking. These are people, people. And God has called us to love anyone in need. And they're here. We don't have to go. They're here. And these are the people God has put in Charlotte, hurting people, and he's called us to be neighbors to them, to love them. That's who. The second is when. When are we called to love? When are we called to love? The answer's simple. Whenever the need arises. Y'all, we, we Christians can sometimes be really good at making excuses for why we don't help people in need. By the way, that's not new with our generation, all right? Uh, in fact, 1700s, a pastor named Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a little book. It was called um, The Duty of Charity, uh, about how really a lot to do with this passage. And in it, he listed out the most common excuses that Christians give for why they don't practice charity, why they don't practice neighbor love. The first one he said is, well, we only help when someone's in dire need, right? When, 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 there, when there's a really bad problem, when there's a really bad crisis, when the situation's awful, then, then we can mobilize and help out, right? Then we can all text to give when the, the fundraiser comes on TV for four hours. Then we'll be mobilized when it's really bad. But the response to that is, we're called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And y'all, we come to our own aid long before the situation gets dire. We are quick to come to our own needs. What about those of others? The second excuse he said that I thought actually can really resonate with some, he said, well, Christians will sometimes say, well, they'll look at suffering, hurting people. and say, well, listen, they brought this suffering on themselves. Let's say you think that way, right? Let's just, you pick whoever that is, whatever. Maybe it's someone in prison and you're like, well, they brought that suffering on themselves. Maybe it's somebody else, whatever it is. Here's what Edward's answer was. He says, well, yeah, if you think that way, Christ came and relieved your suffering that you brought on yourself. Should we not love others as Christ has loved us? And in fact, Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from your neighbor when it's in your power to act. We have the responsibility, but also the opportunity to show neighbor love, especially to those that don't deserve it, because that's us. Let me, that, that third question, who are we called to love? When we're called to love? And the third one would be how much? How much are we supposed to love? And I believe the answer is simply, look, neighbor loves a sacrifice. Neighbor loves a sacrifice. All right, listen, the Edwards, he said the um, third excuse people give is, look, I just can't afford to help, okay? I can't afford to help the guy in need. I, my time is just, it's just too tight. I don't have that much time. My budget is too tied up, right? Look, I get that. I get that, okay? I, we are conditioned. Everything about our country, everything about our culture, everything about the, the systems that we operate in teach us to look out for number one. It's just the kind of the way, and it's applauded when you do. All right, listen, I, I've got, I get this. I've got a job that takes plenty of hours a week. I've got kids that I, a young family I'm trying to raise, right? Friends in the church that I'm trying to do life with, neighbors, all these, other, all these responsibilities that I have, it will never be convenient for me to love my neighbor who's not right there in front of me. 
But y'all, the answer is Galatians 6 2, where Paul says we are called to carry one another's burdens, which means their burdens become our burdens, and, and let's just burdens are burdensome. Like we should feel it. We should feel it. There's no magic number like you're supposed to give this amount of money or this amount of hours to loving your neighbor. No, you're supposed to give until you feel that you are shouldering the burden of others. The Samaritan sacrificed so much for this Jew, this Jew that his people had told him he should hate. Time, clothing, resources, lots of his own money. Are you serving others? Are you offering neighbor love to others in a way that is sacrificial to you? And for most of you, this excuse is the big one. It's the big one for me. It's always gonna be inconvenient. So if you look at, if you build your neighbor love around your calendar, that is a lose-lose scenario. You're gonna have to build your calendar around how you love your neighbor, which is gonna be a whole different way of thinking, all right? And it's gonna mess you up for a little while. And when you go, man, this is incredibly inconvenient. Yes, it was very inconvenient when Jesus got up on the cross. It was it wasn't like, I got some spare time. That's not what happened there. But it was out of his love for you and likewise out of our love for others. Y'all, this is how the gospel goes forward. The gospel always goes forward through personal sacrifice. Jesus' love, like I said, it was sacrificial love. And every time since then, when the gospel has gone forward to someone else, it has gone through someone or some group of people sacrificing. Sacrificing comfort, maybe of where they live, maybe of their extracurricular activities, convenience, time, money, relationships, that awkward space where I'm sacrificing, we got a good friendship here, but now I'm gonna step into the spiritual and that could get awkward and I, we might, I might lose my friendship over this. It's personal sacrifice Always, the gospel always goes forward through personal sacrifice. Mercy, this is just at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The church is God's, listen, the way to think about it, God's demonstration community. That means loving people that you wouldn't otherwise love. They're not in your family, they're not in your house, right? They're not on your street. Loving people you wouldn't otherwise love. Loving them even if, and I'm gonna say especially if, but even if they brought hardship upon themselves and loving those people so much that a sense of burden and sacrifice falls onto you. When we love this way, then we're demonstrating God's love. And that's what we do. There is a danger for us. It's, and I am, when I say us, I mean us because I've been convicted like crazy this week about this, uh, the teaching that Jesus offers here. There's a danger for us to get distracted with our religious activities and miss the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. Jesus warned um, against this in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You, and then he uses the word, look at that word, hypocrites. Why? Why does he call them hypocrites right there? Because you pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet, so you do these little religious activities, even the minutia of the religious law, you're following that, and yet you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the minutia, but these things should have been done first. Are you loving your neighbor? Are you seeking justice for the hurting? 
Y'all, listen, like, whole day is kind of built towards this a little bit. A couple of times a year, we do Serve Week, where we introduce you to organizations that we're partnering with so that you can practice neighbor love year-round. Really, this whole Serve Week is just kind of like an on-ramp to that. And Serve Week starts on May the 10th. We're ending our service out on the patio today. You can meet reps from those organizations. Find one to serve with during Serve Week. It's a small little step, okay? It's just a small little step so you can begin to at least meet your neighbor that you can then love. Now, that's all, that's all what neighbor love looks like. I want to close this down with why we love our neighbors. Listen to this. The twist in Jesus' story, as I've said, is that it's a Samaritan who's the hero. That makes it very hard to swallow for the Jewish man. Like I said, if Jesus wanted to just give an example to emulate, he would have used an upstanding Jewish guy, everyday Joe. But the Jewish man that is talking to Jesus, he would have never been able to identify with the Samaritan. Like, be like the Samaritan? It it wouldn't work for him. No way I can put myself in that guy's shoes. So why would Jesus use the Samaritan? What if the reason he used someone so different from the legal expert is because Jesus wanted him to identify not with the Samaritan, but with the guy bleeding on the side of the road? What if you were dying on the side of the road and your only hope was an act of free grace from an enemy that doesn't owe you any mercy? An act of neighbor love from someone who owes you the exact opposite of neighbor love. Would you want that grace? Of course you would. What if the true good Samaritan is Jesus himself? Jesus who got up on the cross to take our suffering, our suffering that we had brought on ourselves, and he poured himself out at ultimate cost of himself in order to save us. And Jesus is saying, if you believe that, if you get your mind and heart, open it up a little bit and grab what is happening there. The Father, God the Father's love for you so much that he sends his only son for you. If you believe that, when you were in your darkest hour, in your greatest place of need, what would your life look like when you encounter people of need? Well, you see what he's doing. He's not giving the lawyer like some new rule that the lawyer's supposed to follow. He's showing the lawyer a new way to see the world, a whole new way that Christ has shown radical love towards us. And if we receive it and we embrace it, we lean into it. John 59, how many times have we said that around here? Abide in it, make our home in it. Then, then we will become generous givers of neighbor love towards any in need. Church, we must love the hurting in Charlotte because that's what neighbor love does. So we, Mercy Church, will fight for justice for the oppressed because that's what neighbor love does. We're gonna pour out time, money, tears, and smiles to people who will never pay us back because that's what neighbor love does. We will unashamedly declare the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ into every corner of darkness here in our city because that's what neighbor love does. Y'all, Charlotte is Christ's city and we will generously and boldly love its people because we know the profound love that we found through Christ. Y'all, listen, that's just what we're gonna be doing for the next 40 years. Maybe 50, I'm gonna preach my own sermon. Instead of a baptism, it'll be a casket. I'll get done preaching, amen, I'm in, right? That's how I'm going home to Jesus. And in the meantime, that's what we're gonna be doing. 
as a church. So if, you, if this is going to be the church for you, you better get on board with it, all right? Just fair warning. Listen, the one internal adjective that we got, I told you earlier, the one internal adjective in this whole little narrative is where um, it says the Samaritan saw this guy and he what? He had compassion, right? That, that's Jesus letting us look into his heart. The priest, the Levite, they had religion, but their religion didn't translate to compassion. And Jesus is saying, you will never, you will never have truly selfless compassion until you know the love of Christ. Do you know God's love for you? One of the massive things that we're gonna keep saying around here, we've been saying it, we'll keep saying it, you cannot earn God's love for you. You see, that, that's what, the, that's what this, this guy was trying to do, this legal expert, trying to figure out a way that he could earn heaven by being a good enough person. You can't. You cannot be a good, do enough good things. You can't do enough good things to earn salvation, to earn eternal life. Here's one way of saying it. Listen, heaven, eternal life, that's a gift to the believer, not a salary to the do-gooder. So if you are trying to earn eternal life, please, please right now, look at this parable and do not put yourself in the shoes of the Samaritan. Put them in the shoes of the dying man. You can't good works your way out of that ditch. You can't good works your way out of death. You're too far gone for that. You need a savior, a healer. And Jesus says, that's why he went to the cross, to take that label of sinner off of you and put it onto himself and take that label of righteous off of him, of holy, of free, and put it on to you to heal you from your sin, to set you free. His act of neighbor love was to give you forgiveness and eternal life with God the Father, and you can have it today. In a minute, like I said, we're gonna be baptizing people right here. I couldn't be more excited about today because every single one of those, every single one of those is publicly saying, yes, I was the dying man, right? I was the dying man. I needed help. I didn't deserve God's love, but he gave it to me anyway. And because he died for my sins, I'm forgiven. We put him under the water. That's them saying, I identify with Christ's death for me. We bring him back up. That's us saying, that the, each person saying, I identify with the new life I have in Christ. Every Christian in this room today, you got, we got one common story. Not that we were a Samaritan, but that we were dying. And the great Samaritan came for us. I wasn't just dying. It's even worse than that. I was dead. I was dead. And he gave me new life. And he offers you that new life today. 